When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Martyrs and Missionaries is a production of Revive Studios. You're listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise, and in every episode, I'll bring you a new martyr and or missionary, the called and the brave. In this episode, we're exploring the history of the French Huguenots. Alright, before we get into this episode, I want to tell you a little bit about the inspiration that I had for it. There's this podcast I listen to sporadically. It's called Real Dictators. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you haven't. Not a big deal. But they're covering Napoleon. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting because I don't know a whole lot about Napoleon. I know he's short. know he's Corsican. know he was the dictator of France after the French Revolution. But that's really about it. And then it got me thinking about the history of Christianity in France. And I don't know a whole lot about that. I know that there's, you know, this group of people called the Huguenots and they were doing stuff. But when we think about the Reformation, we think of the Reformation more up north, not so much what was happening in France and other places. Much like the Renaissance, there are actually two different Renaissances. You have the Italian Renaissance and the Northern Renaissance. And then you have a Reformation in the North and you have a little bit of a Reformation in the South. And so that's what I was I was looking into. And it is really let me, let me be honest, it's, it's very confusing because there's a political side, there's a religious side, you have all the royal political nature that just gets really confusing. And that's part of the reason it took a long time for this episode to come out, because I wanted to make sure that what I was giving you guys was accurate, but also very condensed because it, it really could, you could get in the weeds just everywhere. Um, and I didn't want to do that because I want to make sure that it's interesting number one, and number two, that you don't feel like you learned a bunch of stuff that's like off on the side, you know? So this one's going to be different because we're not really going to be focusing on one particular person, one particular event. This is going to be much more in the vein of the uh, rise and fall of the history of Christianity in Japan. I have two parts to that one. So if you want to check those out, I can link them. There's also an episode I did on the Vikings. So this is going to be much more like this. But anyway, I'm super excited about it. I'm getting over a cold, so I've got some Flonase, I've got some coffee, so let's do this thing. Now, first of all, I want to begin with the origin of the Huguenots, and that begins with a group of pre-Protestants called the Waldenesians. They are proto-Reformationist followers that originate in the 12th century, and they chose to live simply and in poverty. They're kind of like Franciscan monks, but they're not Catholic anymore, or at least they're not, they're not really Catholic. Um, they refused to submit to the authority of the bishops as intermediaries between themselves and Christ. So that sounds an awful lot like, you know, Reformationists, right? But they're before Luther, they're before all this, you know, it became mainstream. So they were Reformationists before it became cool. Huguenots, obviously, they're a follower of John Calvin. John Calvin is a lawyer, theologian. He's the author of the Institutes of Christian, the Christian Religion, which systematized the works and beliefs of Luther, Zwingli, and others. He's also the founder of Geneva, which will come into the story a little bit here and there. 
John Calvin, as you know, also French. So where does the word Huguenot come from? It's kind of an odd word. There's not really any one answer. Um, so here's a few of the more common ones. It could have come from a political figure and Genevan mayor called Byzantine Hughes. It could have come from the term home worship. It was also used by their enemies in the 16th century. And that origin is probably my most favorite. It comes from a kind of a, a folktale, like a legend. The name basically is derogatory for being a superstitious worshiper. So it holds that the Hugion, I think, so the gate of King Hugo, who's an old king, French king, was haunted by the ghost of Leroy Huguet, which was regarded by the Roman Catholics as an infamous scoundrel and other spirits. Instead of being in purgatory after death, according to Catherine, Catholic doctrine, they came back to harm the living at night. And the Huguenots were said to gather at night in tours for political purposes and for prayer and singing psalms. The Huguenots as a people group were mainly located in southern and western France. Protestants elsewhere in France were predominantly Lutheran. So how did the Reformation go in France? Well, it was really popular, like super popular. It gained rapid support, particularly among nobles and elites. And then it just didn't. And that's because of extreme persecution by the Catholics, Catholic Church. It was a, it was a really, really terrible time. So at their height in about the mid-1500s, they're at 2 million people. And then by the time we get to the year 1700, they've gone down to 100,000 people. And in this episode, we'll figure out the major reasons why. Now, second of all, I want to get into some of the major figures of the early Huguenot French Reformation movement. The very first person who became really enamored with the Reformation was Margaret de Angau Lumet. And she was considered to be the first modern woman. She is a patron of the arts, and she is a very staunch supporter of the Reformation. After John Calvin is thrown out of Geneva, she writes to a friend and asks why. The friend decries the action of those responsible and begs Margaret to purge the Catholic clergy and create Reformation literature for women to read. Now, Anne Boleyn of Henry VIII, off with their head, Anne Boleyn, um, she also served the court of Margaret, and after she became the queen in England, she wrote a very affectionate and friendly letter to Margaret, and she was also in possession of the literature Margaret wrote to increase scriptural liter literacy among the Protestant women, and this suggests a mentor-mentee relationship, and Anne Boleyn is also the mother of Elizabeth I, who's the first Protestant queen of England. Now, Margaret convinces her brother Francis I, who's king of France, to go easy on the Huguenots. And he does, until the affair of the placards in 1535. And what the Huguenots were doing is they were creating these giant posters that were essentially having issue with the Eucharist, or the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And one of these placards made their way to the king's bedchamber and was nailed onto his door, and he did not like that at all. So all the people who were responsible for this were rounded up and burned in front of Notre Dame with Francis I and a delegation of Ottomans in attendance. And this burning of the, essentially the heretics as they were considered, um, in front of Notre Dame was something that John Calvin heard as well. So that plays into an episode that Revived Thoughts did on John Calvin, I believe one of their earliest ones. And I will link that below if you'd like to listen to more about that. And it's got a good sermon attached to it. Francis I did not stop there. In 1545, uh, he does something called the Massacre at Merindol, and this involves the Waldenesians, who were the Proto-Reformationists, and they were very vocal in their support of the Huguenot movement. 
Francis I had them slaughtered in droves, and hundreds of men were rounded up and forced to be galley slaves, uh, galley ship slaves. As soldiers moved out and burned over 20 surrounding villages. And when we think of, like, galley ship slaves, we think of ancient Rome. France was quite, I don't know about any other country, but France was quite taken with galley ship slave enslavement. So if you weren't immediately sentenced to death and you were a man, that's generally where you ended up, at least for a period of time. So after Francis I dies, his son, Henry II, becomes king of France. And in 1551, he, he issues the Edict of Chateaubriand, which sharply curtail, curtails the right to worship, assemble, or even discuss religion at work, in the fields, or over a meal. And this was only for the Huguenots, because obviously they didn't care what the Catholics did, because France is a Catholic nation. And so Henry II is basically picking up right where his father left off. And due to all this persecution, John Calvin starts up Geneva in 1555, and there's a ton of support for Geneva, and the Huguenot movement just explodes, so much so that they have their need for their first synod in Paris in 1558. But there's kind of a pattern to these things, because you'll have growth, then you'll have persecution, then you'll have growth, and you'll have persecution. And so after this growth, there comes persecution in the form of Mary Queen of Scots, who is married to Francis II at this point in time, and she persecutes the Protestants for 18 months. She puts them up in front of Catholic judges, and she employs torture tactics and public burnings. Now, if you look at the history of of Mary, Queen of Scots, there's a real revisionist history going on, and that's that actually happens quite a bit, especially when you look at like female monarchs and just women in power in general, there's this whole movement to make sure everything they do is seen as just fighting against the patriarchy, essentially. And that really, it's, it's, not, it's not accurate. Um, and it also just takes away from, from their story. And they're even doing that. I've seen some different articles about people praising Jezebel. So it, it's, it's really a bad movement. And Mary, Queen of Scots, was a bad person. Her mother is Mary of Guise, who is French, and her uncles, part of the Guise family, they're conspirators that helped kick off the first French war of religion, and they'll come up quite a bit in this story, so don't worry. So just hold on. There's more on them. But Mary, Queen of Scots, is considered to be one of the first supporters of religious tolerance, but really she's not, as is evidenced by her behavior in France. But after Francis II dies and she gets shipped back to Scotland, the Scottish Reformation already happened, and so there's not really anything she can do about it, and so she has to be tolerant of the religion because she's outnumbered. And so it's not so much that she's actually just pro-religious tolerance, it's that she valued her own neck. And there's more about Mary, Queen of Scots. Her half-cousin, who was also her husband, was murdered shortly after the birth of their son. Now, her lover was tried and acquitted, and then he goes and marries Mary one month later, and that's... That's pretty suspect. Now, people were not fans of her, and they rose up against her, imprisoning her, and they placed her son on the throne. And she made an unsuccessful attempt to regain the throne and then was forced to flee to England under the protection of her cousin, Elizabeth I, who kept her in prison and kind of moved her around from place to place in, in nice prisons. But the two actually never met, even though um, they wrote many letters back and forth because Elizabeth didn't trust her. And it turned out she was right, because Mary considered herself to be the rightful Queen of England, and she had the support of many English Catholics. And then, about after 20 years in prison, she was sentenced to death because she was accused of 
plotting to overthrow Elizabeth I. And so she was sentenced to death by beheading. That's a story in and of itself. The person who was in charge of hacking off her head did a terrible job, a hack job, if you will. And then afterwards, they found that she had this pet terrier. And you know how they had those big floofy dresses in the olden times? And this terrier was found like underneath her skirts. And then it, you know, cries in a puddle of like rapidly expanding blood. So it's, it's a whole thing. But that's the end for Mary, Queen of Scots. Not a good person. Now, meanwhile, in France, we've moved forward. So now we have the death of Henry II, who is the son of Francis I. He dies in a jousting accident, and that results in a political vacuum. His heir, Francis II, was 15 years old and sickly. Now we get Catherine de' Medici. And if you are familiar with any kind of political intrigue history, the Medicis come up quite a bit, especially in connection with Italy. And the Medicis were terrible people, horrible people throughout history. Catherine Medici is the daughter of Lorenzo de' Medici, who is the original, basically the original mafia is what they are. Um, he is the patriarch of the Medici family, um, and they are patron of the arts. So they're big in the scene of politics, everything like that, huge in the Italian Renaissance. And after Catherine de' Medici is born, her father dies of syphilis, which tells you a lot, and her mother dies of the plague. And then when she gets older, she's engaged to be married to Henry II. As we know, he will die in a jousting accident. But it was a loveless marriage because Henry had a mistress who was quite well known and kind of in your face. Like it was very much like this is the favorite of the king and you know, you're just a political marriage. And after she married Henry II, she was actually thought to be a witch because she was barren. And she tried every single fertility treatment known to man, which meant she drank um, mule urine. She had this strategic placement of cow dung and stag's antlers, which to me sounds really witchy. So I don't know if she was a witch before, but certainly afterwards, there's some witchy elements going on there. But eventually, somebody steps in to help them. So they have to have somebody come in and I guess tell them what they were doing wrong. But after this point, she never has another problem conceiving and she actually goes on to have 10 kids. And there's actually one more tie-in with Mary, Queen of Scots, who was married to one of Catherine's uh, sons, Francis II. But Mary, Queen of Scots, grew up in the French court and she's actually a favorite of the court. She was considered to be very beautiful. And so Catherine considers her to be a threat. And after Francis II, Mary's husband, dies... Basically, Catherine puts her on the first ship back, like, just get out of here. You're, you're going back to Scotland. And just that's, that's the end of Mary, Queen of Scots in French history. And regarding Catherine, she probably was a witch. Actually, there's quite a bit of evidence that she was into the occult. Um, one of the most convincing evidences of that was that Nostradamus was a seer at her court. Um, and there's also some other things about just occulty stuff, but we won't we won't really get into that. That's not particularly important to our episode, but it is an interesting thing. So if you're ever interested in looking that up, it's an interesting rabbit trail. Oh, one more thing. She actually brought cutlery to France and she introduced them to good food because before this point, I guess the French were just eating with their hands and they weren't eating very good food, at least according to Catherine, like in particular pastries and things like that. So with that being said, Technically, is French food actually Italian food? 
Catherine becomes the queen regent after the death of her husband, and she tries to broker peace between the Catholics and the Protestants. But what she doesn't realize is there's much more than just politics. It's a religious difference, which is why she just keeps failing over and over and over again. Now, meanwhile, in the background, we're back to the Guy's family, who were the uncles of Mary, Queen of Scots. They are very powerful in the court of France, and France is deeply in debt due to these Italian wars. And so the Guy's family manages to hold on to all of their wealth while trimming away everyone else's to help pay down the debt. And they're really the ones that are ruling the throne, not Catherine de' Medici. And they are responsible for the very first of eight civil wars in France called the French Wars of Religion. The first one gets kicked off in something called the Ambrose Conspiracy, which we won't get into because it's a lot of politics. But the very first civil war ended with the assassination of the Duke of Guise. And his bullet wound was not immediately thought to be life-threatening. But then as these things often do, his wound became infected. And towards the end, he began muttering, interestingly, about the need to reform the Catholic Church. His family did not want anyone to think that he had turned Protestant. So they put out this rumor, basically, that he had been reading the book of James, which was an epistle rejected by Martin Luther. So he's definitely not a Protestant. Oh, that's, that's really fascinating. Apparently that had happened earlier on with somebody else in the guy's family as well. So it wasn't just a one-off, just, just interesting. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another major moment, a turning point in these eight civil wars that France had was something called the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. There's a bit of a lull in the wars because Catherine de Medici attempted to unite the Catholics and the Protestants by offering her daughter Margaret to the Protestant leader Henry of Navarre, who would later go on to become Henry IV, King of France. Now, all the Huguenots who's who show up, there's thousands of them, and the marriage goes really well. And there's a man in attendance who's a really, really high up in France in general, and especially in the Huguenot movement. He's an admiral by the name of Gaspard II of Colonnais. If he, I guess there's a city in New York that's called Col Coligny, and it was originally named after this region in France, but no one could pronounce it, so they named it Coligny. And people who try to pronounce it correctly are eventually ridiculed into changing it to Coligny. But anyway, uh, Gaspard II, he is a uh, Huguenot favorite. He's a favorite of King Charles IX, who is the uh, another son of Catherine de' Medici. She actually has three sons that rule on the throne, and they're all very sickly, and it doesn't go well. Um, but he goes to the court after the wedding to talk to the king about attacking Spain, who is an enemy of France, and they have many, many prior wars. 
And Spain at this point is very weak. And the idea, the argument for this is that it could be a uniter between the Catholics and the Protestants. This is a common enemy. And the guy's family turns the king against the idea, and in turn, the entire court voices their extreme displeasure. And the guy's family decides to orchestrate a plot behind the king's back to kill Gaspard. The first attempt was made on August the 22nd, which is four days after the successful wedding. Most of the Huguenots are still in Paris. But the attack failed because Gaspard literally bent down to tie his shoelaces, so the bullet missed its intended target and just shatters some fingers instead. And the Huguenots, rightfully, are outraged, and they demand that something be done. Now, the court, who fears retribution, and the king is just, he's just weak, he's inept. And so he allows the guy's family and the court to assassinate Gaspard and many of the other influential Huguenot leaders. The idea being, we can just take them out here, and if we weaken them, just wipe them out, basically, there will be no retribution on us. It's a short-term bloody massacre for long-term gain, was the idea, I think. They attacked at night with Gaspard being the very first victim, and his attackers were actually led by the Duke of Guise himself. Accounts tell that they were shocked by how calm that he was, and his attacker, who had busted into his hotel room, says, Oh, Admiral, Admiral, you sleep too deeply. Are you not the Admiral? Colonnay retorted, Yes, I am him, but you are too young a soldier to speak thus to an old captain. At least have respect for my age." Before being pushed from the window, the final words Colony heard were, I am old enough to put you to rest. After he falls out of the window, rioters cut his head from his body, his hands, and other parts of him, and drags his body behind a horse. His head is then pickled and sent to Catherine, who then passes it on to Pope Gregory XIII, not a good pope. The Catholic inhabitants of Paris became caught up in the bloodlust, and Huguenot leaders were caught completely unaware, unable to protect themselves. And it got so out of control that the streets of Paris ran red with blood and the death toll approached 4,000 in two days. And soon the massacre spread to other provinces, which in turn killed 10,000 more Huguenots. And the Pope was over the moon with this and he commemorated the event with medals and personally congratulated those responsible. And the event became known as the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre and it sparked the fourth war between the Catholics and the Protestants. Henry of Navarre, who became the husband of Margaret, daughter of Catherine de' Medici, and the whole reason why everybody was in Paris in the first place, he converts back to Catholicism to save his own life during the massacre. He eventually becomes king in 1594, and that whole thing is just its own problems because he had actually gone back and made himself Protestant again, but then once the author offer of the crown was on the line, and at the behest of his mistress, which also tells you something about him, he denounced Protestantism once and for all and said, Paris is well worth a mass. And that really made the Protestants mad and Elizabeth I, who had been a former ally. Despite all of this, he's actually he's actually a good king, and he's, he's called Henry the Good. And because of his Protestant ties, he issues something called the Edict of Nantes. And this lasts from 1598 to 1685, but not really. It only lasts for about 40 of those years. But it granted religious and civil liberties to the Huguenots and officially ended the wars of religion. So all eight of them done. 
That's no longer an issue. But it made him many enemies, and he has all these assassination attempts. There are actually 12 assassination attempts, and the last one finally succeeded, and he's killed by this crazed Catholic monk in 1610. But this in and of itself is kind of suspicious, because this assassination occurs the day after his wife's coronation. Now, his wife, now his widow, was named Marie de Medici. I told you, they're a terrible family. Marie serves as regent to the young son from 1610 to 1614 when he had reached legal age, but she refuses to step down and has to be forcibly removed in 1617. And she's actually banished by her son and then dies in exile. But she instilled one very important value in her son, and that is a hatred of the Huguenots. Now, her son's name is Louis XIII, and that name should sound very familiar to you if you have ever read The Three Musketeers or The Man in the Iron Mask. And King Louis XIII actually has an advisor named Cardinal Richelieu, and he's a bad guy, and he's also the inventor of the table knife, because he was tired of watching people pick at their teeth with sharp knives. Now, Louis XIII persecuted the Huguenots and took away their civil and military liberties given to them in the Edict of Nantes, and he basically begins a very, very bad trend. And this trend will actually cost King Louis XVI his life, and that is his determination to create a strong centralized government, kind of a god-king concept. And Louis XIII's son, Louis XIV, is just as bad as his father, and he revokes the Edict of Nantes in 1685 and then commences this gigantic wave of immigration and dysphoria and persecution. And he wants one religion, that being the Catholic Church, and at first he offers these financial incentives to convert people to Catholicism, and that fails. And so eventually, he orders the destruction of the Huguenot schools and churches, and he implements this practice known as the Dragonades, where cavalry and infantry are placed with Huguenot families, and they're allowed to harass them and torment them into converting or immigrating elsewhere. And this causes outrage all over Protestant Europe, and many, many French Huguenots fled in droves to England, Switzerland, Scandinavia, Germany. Russia, even to Brazil and to the New World, which we'll talk about in a little while. Um, but however, these mass immigrations devastated the French economy because many of the Huguenots were skilled workers. And when they immigrated, they took their skills with them as they pled asylum elsewhere. And soon immigration was outlawed under pain of death, imprisonment, or as the French favorite, a work as a galley ship slave. One of the people imprisoned during this time is a woman named Marie Durand. She's arrested in 1730 and has her head shaved, and she's placed in prison without a trial. Her brother, uh, who was a pastor, was murdered, and her fiancé was imprisoned or killed. I'm not entirely sure. She could read and write because she was an educated woman, and so she wrote letters to the, for the women in the prison and conversed with her niece, who was in Geneva, and even wrote letters to the Queen of France, pleading for her intervention in their conditions um, in the town. Tower of Constance, or the Constance Tower, I believe, and she encouraged the women, most importantly, to keep their faith, and she may be responsible for the inscription Resister, which is scratched into the stonework of the prison. And in 1768, at the age of 57, she was released when public opinion shifted on the treatment of Huguenots and her prison was shut down. And she dies in her home eight years later. And she's been seen as an icon by many, many different groups, Nazi resistors, uh, conservative movements, progressive movements, just all over. Everyone kind of claims her as their own. 
Another famous person during this time is Antoine Court, and he is a pastor over the Church of the Desert, which is a kind of a group that's in hiding, a, a Huguenot movement that is that is definitely underground at this point. And they actually had these tiny little Bibles that they would stick in the women's buns so they could be hidden. But because of this underground movement, there was a lot of kind of heresy that snuck in and some really strange stuff, very similar but not as extreme as what happened in uh, in Japan. And you can learn about that in part two. But one of these kind of heresies is this prophetic movement. And basically these young people got together and they started prophesying in a, a language they weren't supposed to know. But the things they were saying was stuff that they had actually like read on pamphlets and stuff. So it was a huge thing and it caused a lot of problems and it led to a synod and all this stuff. Um, but they actually had, ton- there were tons of other issues in this church. And number one was a, a legal marriage issues. Because the church no longer didn't recognize your marriage if you got married at the church of the desert. And so your children, any children you had, were considered to be bastards. And so many of these uh, Protestants or Huguenots would get married in the Catholic church so their children would have legal status. Originally, they started out as meeting with like 2,000 people in secret. And when they began meeting in the open, there were 20,000 of them. And the Catholics, in turn, would kidnap these Protestant children and then would would rebaptize them in the Catholic Church. During this time, many people still risked immigration, even on pain of death, and there were several people who came to America. Some of the most famous American descendants of Huguenots are George Washington, Paul Revere, John Jay, who was the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Buffalo Bill, George S. Patton, General George S. Patton, Davy Crockett, and also not American, but very, very cool, Isaac Watts and Charles Spurgeon. There's also some not good guys in there. For example, Rousseau of the French Revolution is, is in there. And even Friedrich Engels, who's the father, forefather, I guess, of communism is also in there. So not everyone's a good egg, but most of them are. And I want to talk about a rela- the relationship between George Washington and Marquis de Lafayette. Um, this leads to something very important in France. So I want to, I want to focus on it. Um, so Marquis de Lafayette, French guy, very wealthy. He is a military man, but he never had seen combat because he's a nobleman. And he's in the courts of Louis XVI. And he wants to help the Americans and the revolution because they're enemies with the British as well. So he goes against the king. The king says, no, I don't want you going. Um, and when he arrives in America, he's initially rejected because they go, ah, you're just another French guy who wants revenge against the British. No, thank you. Go home. And they realize, like, oh, this guy's actually a noble. So they send him over to Washington's troops. And the two become best friends, kind of a father and son relationship. In fact, Lafayette actually names his only son George Washington Lafayette. After the war, Lafayette visited Washington in Mount Vernon and spent 10 days with the family. And because of all these things he'd seen in America and how many different uh, influential American leaders were descendants of Huguenots, he encourages Louis XVI to end the persecution of the Huguenots. And so Louis XVI issues the Edict of Toleration in 1787, which restores the Huguenots to second-class citizens. It wasn't until the French Revolution in 1789 that they were granted full rights and citizenship. Marquis de Lafayette is actually a very interesting um, individual. After the storming of Bastille, he sends the keys of the prison to Washington. And actually, I believe you can still see it in 
I believe it's in Mount Vernon, but I've, I've never been, haven't seen it, but I believe that's where it's at. And it, But there's this whole, it, there's, there's, it's actually amazing how much back and forth and just inter, interwoven stories there are in the French Revolution because Thomas Paine wanted the Americans to help out with the French Revolution because the French had done so much for for America. But George Washington realized that this is a very different kind of revolution. It's not, um, they're not fighting for the same reasons that the Americans fought. And so he said no. So Thomas Paine, who at the time was part of the delegation to France from the America, from America, got involved with the French Revolution. And he is against the killing of, of Louis XVI because he's just not, that's not his thing. And also Louis XVI was very influential in the American Revolution. But obviously he's, he's out outnumbered and and so um, Louis the 16th is killed and Louis the 16th is killed really because of the things that happened before him with his predecessors the 15th 14th and 13th and this idea of a strong central government a, a ruling fist a a god king concept and and Louis the 16th was actually a good king his wife was a good was a, a good queen but the sentiment had turned against them from this, you know, over a hundred years of just just ironclad ruling. But Thomas Paine, after the tides kind of turn against him, he gets he gets in bad with the French ruling party at the time of the French Revolution, and he's imprisoned. And he gets quite mad about it because uh, when he left, Washington said, you know, if you go, I'm not going to give you any kind of American. Like you're not you're not going with any any kind of the power of the American government behind you. And so when he's imprisoned, he's imprisoned as a like a British guy. Washington refuses to send help. Now eventually he is released and he comes back to America and he's really upset about it writes Washington a very detailed letter and he was going to send it on his birthday but then he's you know kind of walks it back and waits a few more days um, but it's a whole thing and it really damaged the relationship between Washington and Payne so many so many interesting stories so look that up if you'd like to as well Another story of the Huguenots who arrived in America, one of their very first settlements was near St. Augustine. And the Huguenots decided that they were going to settle a little bit further up north from the, from the Spanish settlement. And this is during the time when everyone's vying for control of the New World. And the Huguenots set up something called Fort Caroline. And it's, they don't, they're not that great at it. There's a little bit of a of the of a three pig story because Fort Caroline is built out of wood and Fort Augustine is built out of stonework and so when the when the Spanish commander of Fort Augustine finds out about this piddly little Huguenot settlement he decides to just head up and just take them out but he is actually in his own way and the own I guess that at the time it's seen as very gracious because he doesn't kill the women and children and he spares any of the men who claim to be Catholic. And so in, in its own way, it's very merciful. But one guy who escapes, he becomes, he, I, think, I think he spent time as a galley ship slave. And then when he comes back, he comes back with a force and liberates Fort Caroline from the Spanish and just wipes out everybody. Every single person shows no mercy. So that's kind of an interesting story as well. There's so many things like this that are just just hidden little hidden little nuggets in history. The Huguenots as a whole ended up all over the world. One descendant founded the Red Cross, others started charities, hospitals, worked as abolitionists, stood against the Nazis and apartheid. They were missionaries, pastors, and theologians. Um, there's one lady who wrote a biography on Paul Revere, and she says this. 
France had opened her own veins and spilt her best blood when she drained herself of her Huguenots, and everywhere, in every country that would receive them, this amazing strain acted as yeast. The Huguenots, by the time of the French Revolution, they're not really much of a thing anymore. There's some of them, as I said, there's about 100,000 left, and some of those are killed in the revolution, some of those go off and to other places. There's just, as a whole, the, the French Huguenot movement just kind of dies. But all the people who left go to other places. They did really incredible things, and we have so many descendants that are really cool that I mentioned in this episode. There's so many more. Um, There's just a gigantic list of how many people are Huguenot descendants that will just blow your mind. It's amazing, and so I really hope you enjoyed this episode. It is very different from anything that I've done prior, even with some of the episodes that are kind of like this one, but it was a lot of fun to put together. And let me know what you thought of it. If you thought I left something out, or if there's another story you want to tell me, or you learned something new, just let me know. You can email, you can leave us a comment on Twitter. All that stuff is in the description of this episode. As always, thank you for listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.